Good afternoon. I think we probably need to get started. Uh, my name is Chuck Weir, for those who don't know me. Uh, I have uh, been asked by uh, Brian to introduce our guest speaker today. He has a conflict in the table to come. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things before we start. I want you to notice that your uh, credit code uh, for this seminar series is uh, P8TJ, and it'll be up here uh, throughout. I also want to state that uh, Tonya has signed a disclosure uh, affidavit, and that, uh, to my knowledge, there are no conflicts with anything that she is going to, uh, going to say today. Now, to introduce Tonya, I had the privilege of knowing her, I believe, when we talked about 15 or 20 years. Uh, uh, through a mutual friend, Dawn Abridge, who has been an HIV activist for uh, as long as that I have known her. Uh, Tonya received her bachelor's degree from Yale University and a master's degree from uh, Emory University and then a master's in public health at, from Rollins College and uh, then went on to uh, her PhD degree in international <laughs> health at Johns Hopkins. And since uh, uh, 2012, she joined the faculty there. Um, she has risen from adjunct to a, uh, a tenure track uh, faculty member uh, in the Department of uh, Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her particular interest, in addition to being an excellent dancer that I used to <laughs> a number of years ago, uh, her research uh, and teaching uh, and health practice focused on HIV and LGBT health, with particular attention to transgender health disparities. What I should have also mentioned is that in this short time that she's been at Hopkins, she's received several teaching awards, and very interesting, not only from the students, but also from her colleagues, the faculty. And she's also published uh, uh, approximately seven articles, uh, as, as well as including review articles. So she is uh, uh, a certified HIV specialist by the uh, American Academy of HIV Medicine and currently provides medical care for people living uh, with HIV uh, at, uh, at, at Hopkins. So it's a pleasure to have you here today. The title of her presentation is Transgender Issues, Taking a Broad Perspective uh, to Care. Thank you so much. Before you start, Chuck, is the 80% rule about you have to stay? Oh, yes. For those of you that are interested in obtaining credit, uh, there's going to be a checker of the fact you have to be here 80%. If you leave 78, 79%, you're out of the The other thing that we ask you also to do is to fill out your evaluation form. And that should just about cover everything. So, what's the best way of shutting down the front lines? Switch over here? Just let you do it back there. There. Okay. Is that okay? That's good. Welcome. Good Thank to have you here. I'm excited to be here. I, it's my first time in New Hampshire, and you promised me a beautiful day yesterday, so thank you for that. I had a lovely time. No, really, I was expecting to be cold and miserable, but that was this morning when I was out here. Folks feel comfortable kind of going around just saying like your name and a little bit about what you do, like 
Yes, you know me. Josh, I know. I'm a researcher. Hi, I'm Lisa Purvis. I work in the AIDS Education and Training Program. I also teach the MPH program here in my work in Tennessee. So excited to have you here. Paul Hornbrook, pediatric infectious disease. Benjamin Bowe, an endocrinologist. I work in our, both our adult clinic and then our adolescent clinic. That's the apples. I want to be HIV nurses here. Jack Jerko, one of the endocrinologists. And I work. I see a lot of uh, transgender patients that come in. Okay, I'm there. I'm the Ryan White. I'm the uh, behavioral health clinician. Who wants to pay attention to the very easy to get the cost of that? Heidi Villar, consumer advocate for the family HIV program. And my pronouns are she and her. <laughs> Jeff Parsonet, one of the infectious disease physicians. I'm Martha Rodriguez. I'm a research scientist and we investigate HIV infection in women. Uh, I'm Mickey Patel. I'm also a research scientist in the I'm Jim. I'm a research scientist working with Dr. Chuck I'm Patty Rich. I would be the IDIH compliance officer. <laughs> I, I, I'm an admin assistant. Anyway, if you feel like seeing more vibrant color, you know, I'm going to be offended. Um, I'm going to start reading so many 
And then I say this even though it seems pretty obvious. Part of what I do is systematic reviews, as Chuck mentioned in some of the older literature, you'll hear people that I would call transgender women refer to as transgender men. So I just want to always have to clarify that. Um, there's a growing um, body of interest in literature on people who are gender non-binary, who don't see themselves as either men or women, they see themselves as a combination or outside of that binary altogether. And then cisgender is a relatively new term that did appear in the Merriam-Webster dictionary a couple of years ago to refer to people whose gender uh, aligns with the sex of their I must say that uh, for the older folks among us, uh, the, the boomers, um, it's, it's really challenging to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems to change almost on a monthly or yearly basis. I don't know if you find that to be true. Terminology changes really rapidly. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think for me, it's one of the things that makes it feel so dynamic and interesting. But I can see if you're just like, I'm just trying to get through my day. <laughs> Without it pissing anybody off, it'd be hard. I found out if you go to scientist uh, Facebook now, you have 58 choices for your gender. I guess. Only 58. Okay. <laughs> One of them's other. Yes. <laughs>
Equality did a national study of transgender people. They recruited 27,000 transgender people in the United States. That is like the largest study of like voluntary, non-paid, I'll participate in your study online for free um, that I've ever seen. So um, of this 27,000 people, 39% reported they had a serious psychological distress. This is compared to what we see about 5% in the general US population. Consistent with a, a similar study that they did in 2009 with about 6,000 transgender people, about 40% of people had a tendency to suicide at some point in their life. And then the number of parentheses is compared to the general population. High rates of suicidal thoughts, high rates of making a suicidal plan, as well as attempted suicide in the past year. And sadly, for the folks who had attempted suicide, frequently it was more than once in a and sometimes more than one time. And I hate to present stuff like that and go, okay, well, we're just moving right along. So I was really grateful to a researcher out of Canada named Greta Bauer who published a study on um, what are the intervenable things you can do, right, um, to prevent suicide. So they found in their study high levels of parental social Uh, 
prevalence range from 0.5% to 4.3%. With the caveat that many of these studies are very small. So if you look, um, these are those five, five studies graphed, and I put the sample sizes at the bottom. You can see 23, 20, uh, 30 are the sample sizes. Yeah, maybe you can turn around and you can see more. <laughs> so that 4.3% study was one HIV positive person out of a sample size of 25 to 30, right? So we don't have really good data among transgender men. In the largest study, the one by Harbarta, which is a CDC study of HIV testing events, the prevalence was um, close to about 0.5% among the 2,000 HIV testing events. And I suspect that's closer to what you would see in the general population in terms of HIV prevalence among trans men. So where do we have concern about HIV among trans men, given that their, their uh, HIV prevalence seems to be consistent with the general population? It's among transgender men who identify as gay or have cisgender male partners. That's what we're concerned about HIV in the same way that we're concerned about HIV among other men who have HIV. There is some growing, although limited, evidence that testosterone may impact people's sexual behavior and their sexual desires. Um, there were a couple of studies that I was able to find that showed that testosterone was associated with increased sexual frequency, so higher amount of sex and a greater likelihood of shifting attraction towards cisgender male partners. So if that indeed is the case, then we need to make sure that we pay attention to how we talk about HIV prevention for transgender men. Any comments or questions about consistent with what people are seeing in the I would say in my population, probably about half of the transgender men I see uh, identify as, as gay. So. Yeah, not uncommon. And this was like blowing people's minds like five years ago. Now people seem to have adjusted to it, but it seems like quite a surprise. We know a lot more about HIV among transgender women, much more studied, although there's still lots to be learned. Um, in that global meta-analysis um, that we did a few years ago, the prevalence in the United States was around 22%, which was a 34-fold greater odds than what we saw in the general population. And then in that updated systematic review, pretty much the same results. We looked within that population at who among transgender women in the United States are at greatest risk. Not surprisingly, transgender women of color were at the highest risk. Lowest was among young people, 16 to 24 years old. If you look at that number, 4.5%, right? That's more than 10 <laughs> times higher than what you see in the general population anyway. So it's incredibly high. And for me, it suggests that we just need to start really early in the HIV prevention efforts with really young transgender women. So what I always think of is what is driving those health disparities? What's driving the high suicide rates? What's high, driving the high HIV? I'm a, uh, I would guess, call myself a social epidemiologist, so I look at what are the social and structural drivers, also because those are things that we can, right, right now, do something differently about. So we know that there are high rates of stigma and discrimination against transgender people. I will not read all of the things on the slide there for you, but you can see that there are impacts in terms of violence, there's impacts in terms of access to legal documentation, there's impact economically, um, related to stigma, and that for some people that's layered. So that if you're a transgender woman of color who's a sex worker and um, African American, you have all of those experiences impacting your ability to access HIV prevention services, your trust of healthcare institutions, um, and the things that you need to do to stay alive. That often involves substantial HIV-related risk. We also know there's a high rate of um, murder against transgender women. But there's an international program called. Uh, Trans Murder Monitoring Project, which is a pretty blunt description of what they do, <laughs> right? Um, so they track um, murders against transgender people. 
Now, keeping in mind this has to be reported that the person's transgender and reported to the medical monitoring project um, as, as a murder recognized person. So it's probably highly an undercount of that. Um, there's also the National Violence um, Coalition in the United States that tracks murders, and I think we're up to the teens for this year in terms of murders of trans people in the United States that are known and documented. And the number at the end of last year was somewhere around 27. So high rates. Um, the woman on the right um, was a patient of mine at clinic. Um, I remember when I got that phone call, um, the people told me before I turned on the news they wanted to let me know something about one of my patients and she had been murdered. And it was particularly hard because I was really excited for her next visit because she just recently started care and I was going to tell her that she was undetectable and yay, we found a regimen that worked and things were going so great and that uh, really hard to see that. So, so it's very personal. You might think, well, what is all of that? That's all really bad and it sucks, but what does that have to do with HIV? Right? So there are lots of people who do great work on uh, creating frameworks and conceptual models. Um, and this one was designed by Dr. Asa Radix, who is the Director of Research and Education at Calvary Community Health Center in New York. <coughs> I'm going to draw some of the lines based on the literature to how transgender stigma leads to elevated HIV prevalence. So we know that stigma leads to barriers to health care. I think I have a slide with some of that data. There are barriers to education and employment. So if you don't have an identity document that matches who you are, you can't actually get employed, right? So if you show up at the job and you're like, hi, I'm Jane, they're like, great, Jane, we're going to take your social security number and check your background, and it says, oh no, Jane is John, then you either don't get hired or you get fired, right? It's considered too much fraud and the metal measurement. Hopefully they get school, maybe they drop out, they don't get as high an education, they don't get a high paying job. So all of that leads to the student economy often drives sales or sex work, which increases the risk for that depression is a common outcome related to stigma <coughs> discrimination. And we saw the high levels of um, suicidality. It's been associated with substance usage. It's also associated with HIV risk. So it makes sense all of the arrows lead in that direction. <coughs> and this is just some of the data I have for joint healthcare providers, <laughs> um, aware healthcare providers, um, how stigma is a barrier to care. So these are some studies that were done by uh, and the U.S. Trans Survey, um, and then a study I did myself that you can't see there at the top that was a, a qualitative study with my, my co-workers. We know that transgender people anticipate that they will experience discrimination when they go for care. So the Lambda Legal Study said how many, about half the people feared that they'd be refused care if they went for care, so they would just flat out have somebody say, I'm not going to take care of you. 73% of people worried that they would be treated differently from other people who were trying to get care, and almost 90% felt that Healthcare professionals were really not trained to provide them with appropriate care. And I would say that in large part has been true in the studies that aren't up here that have been looking at medical students and nursing students about how comfortable they feel providing care for transgender patients. For the most part, people say they don't, haven't really gotten the training that they need to do that appropriately. So we have some gaps there. And then 20, almost a fourth had delayed care in the past year because they were afraid of being mistreated. We also know that healthcare providers. Um, don't often treat their transgender patients the same as they treat other patients. So a third of the trans patients have had a bad experience with a healthcare provider when they had gone in the prior year. So they either had to teach their healthcare provider how to provide care for them, which is not something we ask any other patient really to do. They had invasive and unnecessary questions about being transgender. So this great uh, video that came out a few years ago of the trans woman who talks about going to the emergency room with a cough, um, and she thought maybe she had pneumonia. 
and the doctor asked her to completely undress, left the room, and then came back with a bunch of students to look at her genitalia. I know, it's kind of horrible, like, that's it, right? <laughs> and so that kind of invasive level of, uh, that's, you know, sort of an extreme case, but people ask people all sorts of personal questions that they wouldn't necessarily ask another patient out of their curiosity and lack of knowledge, and just keeping in mind how that impacts patients in terms of their willingness to come back for care together. What is gender-affirming care, like the opposite of that, right? <laughs> so this is where I'm gonna uh, have a couple of cases to just present to you and then walk through So I'm going to present Chantel, not her real name, and I go through a couple of slides and then we'll come back to her. So she's a 26-year-old trans woman. She came in newly diagnosed with HIV, and she asked you for hormones. She has no significant illnesses or hospitalizations in her past. She's not taking any medications. Her labs um, <coughs> look pretty good. Her C4 count is 475. Her viral load is 8,000. We do her physical exam. She's got kind of two breast development, feminine body contour, otherwise in your mind, we're going to come back to her. So what does it mean, gender affirmation? People use that term frequently. So in that special issue of Jade's on transgender health, they really define the four domains of gender affirmation. One being social gender affirmation, so somebody introduced themselves with their pronouns, so, right? so making sure that somebody's called the name and the pronoun that, they, that resonates for them, whether or not it's the same as their legal documentation. Psychological gender affirmation is feeling respected and validated in your gender. Medical gender affirmation, which is where I'll spend most of the time today, is the things that we think about in terms of uh, hormone blockers, uh, hormone therapy, gender confirmation surgery, those kinds of things. And then legal gender affirmation is having a gender marker and, um, and the legal name change that match our gender. Sometimes it helps, helps to think of it as those buckets. This is one of my favorite slides. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's the cutest dog, like, look, I brought you something, and you're like, oh, we're all going to die right now. So this is good intentions and bad results, which is sometimes, I feel like it's often what happens in my life, so I think for many of us, it's what happens in our lives. And misgendering is one of those ways that that can happen. Often people think, what's the big deal? I call the person the wrong name, he instead of she, or, um, and I apologize, and I'm over it. But that person might have been misgendered multiple times during the course of their day, exponential times in the course of their life. Their gender is very important to them, clearly. They're willing to take, they're brave enough and willing to take the risk that it takes to present themselves in the gender that matches who they are. It feels humiliating and disrespectful. It damages your rapport with the patient. If it happens in the waiting room where you are, it can out somebody to everybody else around them. And it contributes to being seen as someone who's so, being, it contributes to having somebody be so uncomfortable that they're not willing to get the care that they need. Right? It only takes one misgendering in the waiting room for them for people to never come back. So pronouns are a really big deal. And this quote is from the US Trans Survey, and I like it because it really, I think, brings home viscerally what the experience is like for someone. This is somebody who was hospitalized, and she said, I was consistently misnamed and misgendered throughout my hospital stay. I passed a kidney stone during that visit. Have you ever had a kidney stone? It hurts a lot. On the standard one to ten pain scale, that's somewhere around a nine. But not having my identity respected, that hurt far more. So if you can think about, as healthcare providers, it can be really hard to remember, especially if somebody doesn't look like you think their pronoun should match, to get it right. But if we can think about, 
every time I get it wrong, I'm making somebody pass a kidney stone, right? <laughs> it's a good reminder what we need to do. So some ways to have more transgender affirming clinical environments is obviously using the per someone's preferred name and pronoun, not to make assumptions about that. Um, if you're not sure, it's actually okay to ask. You don't want to push shout across the room to the person, but having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Include preferred name on the chart and make sure that the staff is all trained. So we work with, y'all have Epic? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so people, I'm so sorry. I'm, we just have the upgrading. I'm just like, I don't know where anything is anymore. Um, there is supposed to be a field for preferred name in Epic, and making sure that people look at that. We have the preferred name. Yeah, it took, it took a while to get it. Yeah, it's like an uphill battle to get it to like actually work for patient care. <laughs> um, and just making sure the whole staff knows to use that. Deferring unnecessary questions and exams, like the example I gave you earlier. Making sure you build a core of working genital exams, like be a big one for any patient. <laughs> right? Like, hi, nice to meet you. I mean, gynecologists are like, hi, nice to meet you, and you're probably already having it. But in general, it's good to build a report for Um. And then when you do the do genital exams, always do them when they're necessary, obviously, and doing it in a sensitive way, always explaining the purpose of an exam, using gender-neutral terms whenever possible to refer to someone's body part, and sometimes asking people what they refer what they refer to their anatomy as. For example, a pants man might not refer to what you would call a vagina as vagina. They might refer to it as their front opening because vagina sounds like a feminine word for that, right? So getting that kind of And then anticipate that trans people exist. I think I'm y'all are all beyond that. <laughs> but there are some people like I don't have any trans patients. I'm like, I'm sure you do. So just knowing that they'll come and having a sense of when they walk into your waiting room, what are they gonna see? Is it gonna be an environment that reflects their existence and says, I know you're here? They have to go to the bathroom if they're gonna be a way that they can go to the bathroom that's not humiliating or embarrassing for them. Just kind of walking through an experience of the patient with those eyes can be really helpful. <clears throat> and the medical and gender, um, surgical gender affirmation. I've highlighted hormones and uh, estrogen and androgen blockers because we're going to talk a little bit about those. And then um, there are many other ways that people affirm their gender. One of the reasons I include this up here is people, I get mostly lay people say, well, had first had the surgery yet, right? So what is that? <laughs> what is the surgery? So you see listed here, there are multiple surgeries that one can have to feminize the body. There are multiple surgeries that one there isn't one of the surgery that people have, and that's important to know. And if you're a clinician, that's especially important to know because if you're taking a medical history, you want to know exactly what the person has had and exactly what they haven't had. So one, you're not shocked and appalled when you see somebody's anatomy and your face looks weird and then it's over. <laughs> so not but also so you provide appropriate. So I'm going to start first with ways that people affirm their gender without any medical intervention at all, that people can do on their own. There's the social stuff like changing your name. People call you this name whether or not it's your legal name, changing your pronoun. But also ways that change, people change their physical appearance. So binding is um, the picture on the far left. So people wear um, clothing that compresses the chest for a flat appearance, a more masculine chest appearance um, above the clothes. Tucking is where somebody takes the testicles and sort of tucks them up and under. It's sort of hard to see from this picture. I have more detailed pictures in your spirit time, but tuck up and under so that the, the appearance of the front of the pants is flat and feminine. And then silicone injections, often not necessarily silicone, but some adulterant silicone, can be injected to 
the body in various locations, hips, sometimes face, um, buttocks and breasts to feminize the body. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we know about each of those things, which is not a whole lot. We know probably least about tucking, a little bit more about binding, and a lot more about silicone. So the Binding Health Project was one that was conducted at Fenway Health Center, and they did an online survey of 1,800 trans men. And they found that about half of them participated in binding on a daily basis. I thought I expected it to be higher, but people don't always bind daily. Um, and almost all of them had had at least one negative outcome associated with binding. They were asked about 28 different outcomes. The most common reported was pain, uh, followed by skin, skin changes or rashes, respiratory symptoms, and musculoskeletal symptoms. The frequency with which they were binding, so the longer they, they bound in the course of one day, the higher, the more likely they were to have symptoms. The method of binding, I was surprised to find that those professional um, binders that you can buy on the internet are actually the ones most associated with symptoms. But then I looked at it and I was like, well, did anybody remember a corset? Right? <laughs> those are not easy for breathing, they're not so comfortable. So I'm not surprised this is similar to a corset, so it has those kind of symptoms associated with it. That people who use a double sports bra actually have the least amount of symptoms. And obviously, chest size, the more you have to compress, the more likely you're going to have symptoms. At the same time, binding was also associated with improved mental health and sense of safety, decreased suicidality, decreased anxiety, and decreased gender dysphoria. So there's a reason that people put up with all of these side effects. Tucking um, was something that we asked about, and I hadn't seen anything in the literature on, on health effects of tucking. So we asked about it in a survey that we did in Baltimore. Um, and we found that about 86% of the transgender women who responded said that they uh, tucked on a daily basis. 83% of them tucked for more than eight hours a day. So anybody a cyclist? <laughs> There's a couple cyclists in the room. So what do people say about men and cycling? Right, you do it for short periods of time, right? Because there's, you move the muscles up closer to the body, there's concerns about fertility, concerns about health. So think about tucking eight hours a day and what that might mean for somebody's health. Despite these theoretical concerns, the people who responded to the survey were not at all concerned about tucking. <laughs> they were like, almost half of them said they hadn't had any health effects and weren't really concerned about it. But for people who did endure symptoms, they uh, complained of itching, a rash, some pain, urinary tract infection, and skin. So these are things that I think are worth bringing up with our patients and asking about, because if they're not thinking about it as an issue, they probably won't raise it unless you ask. Then I call them soft tissue fillers, but people often use silicone sort of broadly. Typically, if it's silicone, it's industrial-grade silicone and not usually medical-grade silicone that most folks have access to. As I mentioned, it can be injected into different parts of the body. The concern is that there is no legal, legitimate, loose silicone injection happening. Somebody's having a loose silicone injection, it's illicit, right? Um, there's a risk of blood-borne pathogens, there's a risk of migration throughout the body. The New York Times did a really interesting article a couple years ago with um, sort of an expose with a trans woman who had this, people remember this, and she was completely disfigured. Um, she had the silicone migrate throughout her body and had some really um, damaging effects on her appearance. And beyond that, there's the risk of emboli and even death associated with it. So this is just fairly Common. Yeah, it's very, very common. It's interesting. We just did this survey, and I wonder, so we have very low rates of people admitting to silicone use, but in my practice, everybody's used silicone. So do you have any data on uh, side effects? I mean, you, you mentioned there are side effects, but I would imagine a high percentage would have some. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, this, and the, the data says 17 to 40 percent of cancer in women. I think in the moment, it's uncomfortable, right? The side effects tend to come, these negative outcomes tend to come years down the road, right? I remember I had a, a patient who was in her 20s, beautiful young woman, who was just not convinced she was beautiful. And that's a whole other conversation, right? So she just kept going to get these silicone injections, and we have conversations about it. And she was aware of the risk of this, but she was uneducated, but she just felt compelled thinking about what are the harm reduction measures that you can take. There isn't really other than not injecting silicone, right? So where do these injections occur? I mean, are people going to Mexico, or are they just illicit shops set up? Um, well, in Baltimore and some of the larger cities, I know that people go to what they call pumping parties. So there's pumping a, parties. Yeah, so there's an individual, individual who's known in the community to provide this service, um, and they book a room or go to somebody's house, and they bring their equipment, and then women come and they get injected while they're there. Yeah. It's a huge thing in South America as well. So a week of patients who've gone to South America just to get silicone injections, not necessarily a trained medical person, but some uh, community person who's very well known for silicone injections. Yeah. <clears throat> I hate needles. I can't even imagine doing this, but I, I think it's access to hormone therapy, it takes a while. You do this, you walk in one way, you walk out the other way. There's a documentary film, I think it's, maybe it's based in South America, it's called Pantatina. And there's this, have you seen it? It's a really interesting film um, in a Spanish-speaking country that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, but there is a scene where they, you are there watching somebody get a silicone injection. So you see this woman go in and her From this research study, that there's a whole thing called a Brazilian butt job. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I was like, what is it about Brazil that they have like better butts than everybody else? Yes. I always try to reassure these patients that the hormones will help, you know, will, will help with the redistribution. You know, so I, I'm aware that this is a problem. We just haven't yet in our population seen the negative consequences. But you've seen it's happening. I've heard. Yeah, I'll have patients who've been out in California. Well, the one, the only one that I've seen with the horrible negative consequences having it done down there and had a horrific allergic reaction that basically disfigured her entire bottom plus infection on top of that. So it was not a good outcome for her. Yeah. There are several case reports documenting the hypercalcemia that can come mm -hmm. from the, the foreign 
body reaction and the macrophage effect. So, you know, I, I, I'm sure I picked that up already at patients and some of issues, but. Yeah. I mean, one of the benefits of being a smaller town is it's less
then how do they protect themselves? I don't, so that I don't assume that they're not trying to do something to protect themselves. And if there's some myths they have around HIV, you can draw that information out. And then how often they use barriers and what gets in the way and what facilitates the use of barriers. Then in terms of the physical exam, many people have had negative experiences with healthcare providers. I always tell people who are new to trans care that um, if their other patients love them, it might take a little longer for patients who have a history of medical mistrust to love them. <laughs> they might eventually love you, they might not, but it's not that you're a bad person. It's that there's a lot of mistrust. If people are familiar with the principles of trauma-informed care, it's really important for this population, and then being consistent about things. <coughs> I'm sorry, can you, can you outline a little bit trauma-informed care? Like, some examples of what that would look like? For me, because I can't control my entire clinical environment, for me, the trauma-informed care is about making sure that the patient feels in charge of the visit, right? So it can be really easy. I train nurse practitioners do this, and some of them come in and they say that they've been told that they have to get through these 20 things in their visit, and it doesn't matter what the patient wants. I mean, you know, that's what they're told. And I say, well, actually, this is that person's visit, so you start with whatever their primary concern is. And so what I try to do is lay out, so what are your major concerns today? These are the things that I think are important today. This is how much time we have. I do a little negotiation about how much we think we can get through in the visit in that way. And then for the physical exam, I'm often overly careful. Writing things like, before I put the stethoscope on somebody's back, I was like, is it okay if I put the stethoscope on your back? Nobody's ever said no, <laughs> but just that sense of they are in control of what happens to their body. Just want to make sure. I'm doing an anatomical inventory, which sounds a little weird. <laughs> but it can be really important for anybody that's having these surgical interventions. For example, prostate glands are not removed during vaginoplasty, so if you have a transgenderable patient and you need to be concerned about what's happening with their prostate, right? Vaginas can be retained after somebody has metoidoplasty, so metoidoplasty is often called epidural release surgery, so it, you end up with an elongated um, small penis or enlarged clitoris, depending on who you're talking to. But somebody can also have a vagina, so they can have um, penile sex, and vaginal sex. So you want to have that kind of information to give people the right um, safer sex information as well as appropriate exams. So you forgot about Chantal, didn't you? She's back. <laughs> so she's still 26, newly diagnosed, wants hormones, pretty healthy, T4 counts 475, low 80,000, energy breast development. What questions do you have about her? Now you're all good. When did she start hormones? Right. She so she's on no medication. What what tipped you off? How she get well she's got ten or two breasts developing and without knowing the BMI that may or may not be abnormal. But I suspect she's been taking some estrogen. <clears throat> a, friend, a friend has a prescription and she's Beautiful. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. So what are her HIV related needs? Those are pretty obvious. Genotype. Right. <laughs> you do whatever your first visit is, you Genotyping, HLA, if that's something that you'll do in the first visit. Central factors. Yep. Just right. Yeah, so sexual history, sexual practices. Smoking is going to be really important in her, particularly because of the women. Yep. Any other primary care thing that would be good for her? Candidate for HPV vaccine? 
concerned about that. Okay, so you want to, yeah, you want to check for cervical disease. Do periods ever stop? If so, how long? Did it start to come back again? Yeah. What else do you want to know? Nobody says, I just never stopped having a period. I use, you know, five pads a day <laughs> for four days, every month. No changes with no testosterone. He's 45. No gynecologist in the room? You got help. I'd be worried. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I heard somebody say it. Yeah, endometriosis. Yeah, I would be worried about endometriosis cancer and endometrial biopsy for pregnant. Exactly. The work the same workout for dysfunctional uterus. Feminizing therapy, multiple forms of estrogen, usually given with an androgen blocker. Um, I don't know what you do, but I've heard different people do different things in their practice. In our practice, we only monitor testosterone levels and make sure that there's a positive a female range. I don't know, do y'all y'all also follow estrogen levels? I usually don't get it. I usually get testosterone. You, you get testosterone too? I do both. I want to see how high they're, you know, how super physiologic they're getting. That's what I can scare me. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, they're sort of pregnancy level, and I have to explain, hey, this is, you know, probably excess risk here with still get you to your goal with a lower level, but not at a pregnancy, you know, estrogen level. So I do check. Okay. And do you lower their estrogen doses if they have higher levels? Yeah, yeah, especially when they're getting into the thousands. I don't like to see that. I feel comfortable and I'm worried, you know, especially I'm seeing young patients that might be on estrogen for 60 years, so. Yeah, I think that this is one of the most important points. It's not the number of milligrams or grams of estrogen or testosterone you give. It's really based on what the individual Certainly, the concentration is because, in fact, what we're learning is that uh, even with the antiretrovirals, uh, depending on the microbiome you have, <clears throat> you're going to metabolize more or less of it. Uh, absorption probably is going to vary with age, a whole variety of things. So, it's really the effect of concentration that gets into the blood. So, whether it's one milligram or six per day. Well, what I found, you know, the goal is to get the testosterone level down to the female range. And I think the really big variant is different people need different amounts of estrogen in their system to suppress their hypothalamic active. So I agree, you know, agree with them, we try to do as little as we can to do that. But some people it's two milligrams of estradiol, others it's eight milligrams of estradiol. Yeah. I think it's important too to evaluate it in an ongoing way as individuals age. Because uh, muscle fat ratios change,
European antiretrovirals that antiretrovirals, as far as we know, based on the information we have, there's very little concern about drug-drug interaction. With the caveat that all of these studies were done with combined oral contraceptive pills, which is not what we give trans women, and it's not what you should be giving trans women for transition-related care. So, jury's out. What we know is that there's little worry about reducing the levels of the antiretrovirals. What we are concerned about is maybe reducing levels of the hormones themselves, right? And while that might not be a big deal to you if you're an HIV care provider, because you're like, yay, viral load's still suppressed. For the trans woman, she's like, well, that's not working for me, right? So she might have symptoms. Some people complain of feeling hot flashes and those kind of symptoms when they're um, off their hormone therapy or they have a drug-drug interaction that reduces the levels, which is amazing stuff. And that's Monica's case. All right, so let's talk about HIV care in <laughs> our last three minutes. Um, we have a growing amount of data on transgender women living with HIV in the U.S. About 6,000 are captured in the Ryan White HIV care system. The CDC has data also on the large number of trans women living with HIV. You see they generally reflect the racial demographic of the U.S. Um, unfortunately, almost one in five are diagnosed late in, in care with an ACE diagnosis, diagnosis within three months of um, being tested. We know that they are, have similar rates of retention in care as we see in general population, but lower levels of viral suppression. So they're not getting to undetectable um, as often or as well as the general population in the Ryan White Care Program did. So what are things that healthcare providers can do to help facilitate their um, adherence and viral suppression? This is data that's taken from the Transgender Law Project. We did a study of transgender people living with HIV. Um, small sample, only 157 people, um, but they, they did some really interesting things to look at um, interactions with providers and its association with viral suppression. So on the far left, you see that providers who restricted access to hormones based on their compliance with their antiretroviral regimen was a dramatic failure, right? <laughs> so people were less likely to be viral su virologically suppressed if their providers did that, right? So even though we know that it's kind of a carrot, um, being able to provide HIV care and uh, trans-related care in the same place, it is not a stick. And similarly, having a provider who was, this is HIV care provider, transition-related care provider, or primary care provider, if any of those providers were hostile or neutral, you know, like, eh, I don't really care about your gender, then they were less likely to be virologically suppressed and that that person was actually affirming. So things you can do, be affirming, don't hold people's medicines hostage. Um, and also ask about their top priorities um, for among trans living with HIV, the top priority was gender-affirming, non-discriminatory care, and the second was hormone therapy and its side effects. We have some preliminary data from a project um, funded by the Health Resources Services Administration, and it stands for Special Projects of National Significance. They included, I think it was nine sites throughout the country, 400 uh, transgender women of color participated. For people whose HIV primary care provider was also their hormone provider, they were more likely to have had a primary care visit in the last six months and more likely to have an So I think I'm going to skip this stuff on prevention because it's 1.30, but I, I'm sending the slides and you can take a look at them. And I just like to end with this. And I try to remember this as somebody who can get really comfortable thinking that I know things. <laughs> that cultural humility is really important. And that's the willingness to suspend what you know or think you know about somebody and towards the effort of really getting to know them and understanding what they themselves have to tell you about who they are. It's a commitment to lifelong learning and critical self-reflection. 
recognizing and challenging some of those power imbalances that take place when one person is naked and being examined and the other person is asking you questions and examining them, right? Um, and then where you have effect on the institution in which you work, holding the institution accountable for facilitating that kind of mutually respectful encounter with your patients. So thank you for listening to me speak through a talk that was way too long. I'm really sorry. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Great question, who the partners of trans women are. 
Like yeah. nobody's done that study that I've seen. Because, <laughs> because you know, it goes to the psychosocial uh, intent and mind as well as uh, maybe the underlying motives that somebody actually underwent the, uh, the, the change. And, uh, well, I don't, know, I don't know motives, but I think you know studies have shown that there are higher rates of transgender people identifying as gay um, after their transition. You said so, they're men. Both, both transgender men and transgender women. Come on, uh, I'm here, yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I'm sorry.